Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Three things that can mess me up in church, like mess me up all pretty much every time. One's preaching the prodigal son. Uh, the other two are singing Oh Holy Night and singing Amazing Grace. Chris just teed two of them up, so we'll see how this goes. We're going to press on. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, we'd love for you to turn there, and we're going to be jumping into this Christmas story. I have a question as we jump in. What makes you feel safe? I don't mean safe like you can go to sleep at night without someone breaking into your house. We live in Oklahoma. We know what to do about that. Um, We get an alarm. That's what I mean. Um, But what makes you feel safe? I'm I'm talking more about the existential feelings of what's going on in here and when you're all alone and thinking about your hopes and dreams and relationships and reputation and your place in the world and wondering if you're doing it all right or not. What makes you feel safe in that kind of a space? The last few months, I've seen a pattern. It's just been interesting in lots of conversations I've had with lots of different people. And uh, actually, a lot of reading I'm doing, people are, are wrestling with the same idea and the same concept. And it's interesting to see how many of us are struggling deeply with the performance of life. We've created some kind of ideal life out there that we say, that's the thing that I, that I want. And that's the thing that if I could achieve... Uh, I know it would all be okay, and so we fight and we struggle for that, and we can't rest until our actual lives start to measure up to that ideal, and so we're just kind of a mess in here at different times. Maybe, you know, you look at Facebook or Instagram, and like we all know that's not real, and that's not anyone's real life, but we still do this all day long, and the fact is we still judge ourselves by the things that we see. We see an image, we see a life, we see a vacation, we see a family, we see a job, we see a house, we see something, and we think, I wish my life looked like that. And you may not be a social media person, but it may be more a mentor or someone you look up to or someone that you, uh, that, that, that you know and you, and you respect. You look and they've become an ideal for you. In some form or fashion, you're tempted to live with this kind of constant gnawing sense of I want that life and if my life looked more like that I think I'd be okay can you relate to any of those feelings friends can I just tell you it's not working I could give you a thousand data points every study in the world says we are becoming increasingly anxiety driven increasingly isolated increasingly I'm stressed out and, 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 and dealing with self-doubt and pressure to perform at a sky-high level. And so we get ourselves in these, mind, these games we're in here. We just think, if I could just control everything so none of the unexpected stuff would happen to the people that I love, then I know it would be okay. If, if I just make 
the exact right decision in this one instance, it'll set me on the trajectory to achieve the things I want to achieve in life and, and, and start me on a course of the optimum lifestyle that I want. But, it's, but I have to make the right choice right now or maybe I'll lose all of those things. And we get ourselves in these places where inside we're just a mess because we think that it's about our performance and our ability to navigate everything just so. And if we don't, then we feel like everything's going to crumble. We don't feel safe. It's interesting, this Christmas, I want us to consider this question. What if our safety, our significance, our security come not from our performance, but from trusting the love of God? What if we learn to rest in Him? And as we consider that question, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at first at the Christmas story from a kind of an earthly perspective and uh, kind of from an earthly viewpoint, what looks impressive about the Christmas story and what doesn't. And then we're going to look at a different perspective, the perspective from heaven of the angels, and we're going to see it in an entirely different light. Sound good? We're in Luke chapter 2. Let me start off and just read the first 14 verses here. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to a firstborn son. And she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. This is the word of the Lord. And as we look at, at this passage, as we think about what it means for us, I want to start talking about it from an earthly perspective, because Jesus' birth from an earthly perspective is pretty unremarkable, isn't it? Like if you think about what, what happens, apart from the story that we all know, if you step back into time and you just think about what's going on, Mary's a 15 to 16 year old unwed mother with a sketchy birth story. She likely is feeling ostracized and pushed out from all the people around her. Joseph is a fledgling carpenter starting out in his career in a small village and he's scared about the whole way his marriage is beginning. It's like, I don't know how, exactly how I got here, but I guess we're gonna do the best we can with this situation. Bethlehem's a nowhere town. In fact, uh, the reason why, if you look in the scriptures, it kind of lists all these other places around it is because most people couldn't have found Bethlehem on a map. It was a, a nowhere sort of a town. And the only people who show up at this birth is shepherds. In that world, shepherds are kind of an undesirable crowd and they were coming straight from their fields where they probably stunk. And yet these kind of undesirable people working the night shift that happened to show up to strangers who... Had, had a baby, um, are present, the only ones that are present here, not family, no one important, but these people in a nobody job, the shepherds. Jesus is born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough where animals ate. 
I'm sure Joseph cleaned it as best he could. It's still a crib that's a feeding trough where animals ate. And that isn't going to fly in my house. When we had kids, like, that's just not the way we're going to roll. But this is what they did. When you think about the, the Christmas story, it's just pretty remarkable. It's just another baby born, born to nobody parents in a nowhere town where no one who really mattered lived. And Luke is capturing the story. He depicts it that way on purpose. And he's intentionally going to contrast the birth of Jesus with another man, a much more austere ruler from Rome named Caesar Augustus. Now, when you say a name like Caesar Augustus, it should have some gravitas to it, shouldn't it? Like, it feels really different already from the birth story of Jesus. And Caesar was a great nephew of Julius Caesar. He ruled Rome from uh, 27 BC to 14 AD. Uh, He, in his early years, has ascended to the throne or called, said that he would take over the throne. But because he was so young, he sort of had to share it in a triumvirate. But he clawed his way up and pushed out Antony and Cleopatra and and took over um, the throne so that he had so rule. He followed that quickly with assassinating some of his key family members just to make sure that he had loyalty of everyone that followed after, after, after him. Uh, not necessarily a nice guy. It's interesting the way he thought of himself. He was the first to be called Augustus, which means holy or revered, a title that had previously been reserved only for the gods. He also took a title on that said son of the divine in Rome. Now, outside of Rome, he pushed the limits even further. Rome, that's as much as he could get away with as I'm just a son of God, but he pushed the limits elsewhere so that his reputation stretched even further. In modern-day Turkey, citizens erected a monument at that time to Augustus Caesar in 9 BC to celebrate his birthday. On that, they inscribed it with, the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the good tidings for the world by reason of him. In fact, Greek cities at that time adopted his birthday as the beginning of the new year and began to call uh, Augustus Savior. Do you hear any language that sounds familiar as you hear about Augustus? Good tidings who came from his arrival a son of the divine, a a savior who came into the world. Luke is writing this in a way that we're meant to feel the tension. Like, oh, this guy is presenting himself in the same terms that we soon see Christ presented about. It's interesting, Caesar at that time, if you picked up a gold or silver coin, he would have had the image of Augustus on it. He established the peaceful rule over a long period of time. It was uh, the Pax Romana. It was a time of peace, and he established that peace with a heavy hand by making sure no one disagreed with him. But part of that payment for his peace and the provision that he created was that he forced all those people that he took care of to pay tribute, taxes to him, which is how we found Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. Verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The reason that Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem is because this Caesar issued a decree that they had to go and register themselves for taxes. Now, from an earthly viewpoint, who seemed to have the better of the story? Augustus sure seemed to have a good life built upon a strong, powerful uh, performance of his own ability and his skill. Mary and Joseph, not so much. Even birth in a stable amidst strangers and resting their baby in a feeding trough. Now, that's how things appeared from an earthly viewpoint, where the strong and the powerful and those who perform really well rise up to places of great significance in the world that are safe and secure. 
But let's look at this story through a whole different set. Let's look at it from the perspective of heaven. Let's think about this story from the perspective of the multitudes of angels that appeared on the nights of Jesus' birth. You remember the story when the shepherds were there and it says that an angel came and said, for unto you a child is born this day. It's good news of great joy. Fear not. He's come. The Savior, he's Christ the Lord. He makes this announcement to them. And just as he finishes, this heavenly host bursts on the scene. A multitude means a whole bunch. That's the official Greek. Multitude is more than you can count. It's an uncountable number of angels across the night sky bursting through. We're not sure exactly how it was, but all of a sudden this multitude of heavenly angels appears there and they begin to, to shout, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, good among those with whom he's pleased. Now, I want us to think about the experience of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, from the perspective of those angels. You with me? We're going to think about it through a little different lens. Angels are interesting. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, preached a sermon. We talked about Gabriel, who was the angel who made the announcement to Mary and Joseph. And we unpacked a little more of this. So this kind of builds on that. I'm not going to go back through that same territory, but if you're interested, go back and grab that. But angels are remarkable beings. They're, they're finite, created beings. God made angels, uh, but they are not like us. Uh, I, I say this every time I talk about angels because there's this idea in our world that when we die, we become angels. You will never be an angel. You'll always be a you. You'll just be you with a glorified body someday, but you'll never going to be an angel. Angels are a whole different set of beings that God created, and they are spirit beings. Now, angels can certainly take on physical form, but they're made of spirit. And angels were created by God to live forever, meaning they don't grow old and die. And yet they can appear in the world and take on physical form in some kind of a fashion, which is what we seem to see here. Now, the thing about angels as spiritual beings is they, they're not gods, but they are eternal, meaning that they never die. Now, I'm just going to assume that you're smarter now than you were 10 years ago, that you're smarter now, old men like me, than you were when you were 17, that, that somehow as you go through life, you pick up some knowledge and some information, at least that's the way life's supposed to work. Now, imagine if the course of your life literally went thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years and you accumulated knowledge, and you observed and watched the way in which God interacted in the world, and you developed an understanding over time. That's what happened with angels. You understand that thinking about this birth of Jesus from an angel's perspective, was that angels were there when God created the earth and all that is in it. Uh, Job tells us that when God spoke the world into existence, angels were right there rejoicing, celebrating, uh, praising God for what he was doing. When God spoke the world and, and the globe formed and the waters and the land were separated and the waters were filled with water animals and the lands were filled with land animals and vegetation took over the earth, the angels were there cheering God on, going, way to go, that's amazing. When God created the first man and he breathed life into them and made him in their image, they were there and they were celebrating and rejoicing in what God was doing. They understood that this was the creation that God had, had, had designed and these were the people that were going to bear his image in the world. Angels would have known about everything that happened on earth for thousands of years. They would have watched when sin entered the world. They would have known that Cain had killed Abel. They would have known that God sent a great flood and Noah had to flee to an ark. They would have known the interaction with Isaac and Jacob and Abraham and Moses. They would have seen the pain brought into the world by sin. For thousands of years, they would have watched and seen all the greed and anger and lust and violence and gossip and jealousy 
and the way in which it ravaged the relationships of the people that God had made. And through all of those years, they would have longed for a Savior to come that God had promised would one day deliver people from the, the problem of sin. Do you see what an incredible perspective they would have had that this Jesus was born? after thousands and thousands of years of longing and watching and waiting for that day to come. Let me take it just one step further and stretch your mind just a little bit more. Because the angels, they knew a secret that Caesar and the rest of earth didn't know at that time. They knew that this Jesus, this baby who was born, was also the eternal son of God. Friends, where was Jesus before he was a baby? He was the eternal son of God in the heavens. Where were the angels before Jesus became a baby? They were in the heavens. For thousands of years, they knew Jesus. They worshiped Jesus. They watched Jesus. They sang praises to Jesus. They had a relationship and lived in an experience of the presence of Jesus. And they knew who he was. And now, think about the wonder of this moment. The eternal son of God whom they have known and worshiped for millennia. The one that they saw create humanity is literally stepping into humanity in order to save the people he's he once made. And they get to witness and see all of this happening. The angels have been longing for the day. They knew about the 300 plus prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament that pointed to a savior named Christ who was going to come, the one who was, uh, who was the Lord, who was the Messiah. They would have known about the prophecy of Bethlehem in Micah 5.2 that says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come, from you shall come forth For me, one who is a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. They would have known that prophecy from the Old Testament. Now, God had sent them to that Bethlehem to worship because of that Savior and ruler who had come. They knew that this seemingly insignificant little baby was going to change all of human history. So friends, when we see in verses 13 to 14, they're worshiping and they're praising You understand this wasn't just some token recital that the angels were going through. But this is something that they have longed and waited for, that they'd praised Jesus in heaven, but Jesus had stepped to earth and they were looking and they knew this was a baby and he's descended and he's here and the Savior has come and it's time and he's going to deal with sin and death and he's going to begin to do it. So they began to burst out saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Can you imagine what that was like for an angel to sing that? Multitudes of angels, more than could be counted. Glory to God. Because the miracle and the mystery of all of what's transpiring, this was the mile marker where salvation began through Christ. From earth's perspective, Jesus' birth kind of looked like God was making a mistake, didn't it? Got a messy marriage in a small town in a nowhere place with nobody's, his parents. From a heavenly perspective, it was glorious. It was what we needed more than anything else. The angels were not impressed with the performance of emperors and power players because they'd seen it come and go. They'd seen Babylon come and go. They'd seen Assyria come and go. They knew Rome was on its way out. But Jesus was going to be a savior and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Fascinating contrast, the kingship of Caesar and the kingship of Jesus. Jesus' birth to Mary and Joseph was a picture of grace. It wasn't a picture of power 
What a contrast to Caesar Augustus. Mary and Joseph appear to be helpless pawns caught up in a moment of political profits. They were going to be sending tribute back to Rome. And it looked like they were the ones who were being ushered around. And yet the hand of God was the one moving all the pieces on the chessboard. God used a pagan emperor's decree to send them to Bethlehem so that they would fill a, fulfill a prophecy that the ruler God would raise up would come from that same city. Only a decree from Rome forced them to go, and yet it's that force, it's that decree that also God used to fulfill the promise that he had made. And one guy said, the accidental events of history have become the acts of destiny. But isn't it interesting that from, a, from, from our perspective, a modern perspective, Caesar Augustus is all but forgotten. Like the only time we ever use his name is when we read the one verse where he's mentioned because of Jesus' story. That's the only time we ever talk about Caesar Augustus, but the name of Christ is spoken everywhere. See, the peace of Rome was short-lived, but the peace that came through the child lasts forever. And the birth of Christ is now celebrated each year around the globe. Friends, can I ask you a question? Can you imagine what Jesus might say to all of our performative effort and striving and struggle and drive and all the things that are going on inside of us as we try to prove that we can build the life that's worth living? What would Jesus, the Savior, say to us. Jesus came to show us a totally different way of being in the world. As God became a baby. In humility, he would lay down his position and he'd give his life away. Rather than wielding his power, he yielded his power and became an infant. Rather than demanding that he would be served, he became a servant of all. This is the story of Christmas. The angels proclaim good news of great joy because the promised Savior had finally come to earth and the entire scene speaks to grace. It's not the elite and the powerful that he came to, but it's everyday people that are here. The Christmas story is not for those that have achieved everything, but it's for all of us. A child in a feed trough, a shepherds in a field, a family just trying to make it out, make life work with a new child. It's a simple life, but all of it is trusting in the plans and the care of a good God. What Christmas is telling us is that we can trust him too. With all the stuff that we wrestle with, with all the striving and the way that we struggle to make it work, we can trust him. Jesus' birth takes place right in the middle of Roman history in the reign of Caesar Augustus, but the key figure in this whole story is not a powerful Roman, Roman ruler, it's a frail child named Jesus, who's Christ the Lord and Jesus knew that we would not be saved by his celebrity, but we'd be saved by his sacrifice. And as we think about our lives, it's important to realize that Jesus will one day come back and the great lion will one day rule. But before he came, comes as the lion, he would first be the sacrificial lamb, willing to surrender everything in his life to save us. Friends, this Christmas, you need to hear to, to us, a savior, has been born to us. A son has been given. It was for you. And that should give us rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and they laid him in a feeding trough. What a humble savior we have. Friends, Christmas is a reminder that God's love does not depend upon your performance. You're not saved because you are great. 
You're saved because his love is great. And Christmas is, uh, is a reminder of his grace that says, even though your performance can never provide the security and significance and safety you crave, you can rest in the unending love of Christ that's stronger and safer than anything you ever imagined. This is what Christmas is all about. This is why the angels worshiped and it's why we worship too. Friends, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. What will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We pray for us. Father, we pray that you would meet each man and woman in the space right now. That in the mess that's in all of us, that you would somehow bring rest. Father, in all our striving, that we might just lay it down and rest in the love and the grace that Christmas came to bring. Father, we pray these things through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. 